Over the last decade, I've been asking myself a couple of closely related questions. One of them is, what explains the incredible growth in what we might call urban-rural polarization? Uh, what explains the fact that voting behavior has become so highly correlated with population density over time? Uh, this is something that's happened not just in the United States, but in a number of other countries, industrialized countries. Uh, it's happened in, in Europe. It's happened in a number of countries around the world. This is something that's been, been I've noticed for a long time and I've been curious about and trying to understand. Uh, that's the first question. So then the second question is once we notice this pattern and we see that votes for parties of the, that we might call the left uh, are concentrated in cities, and so there's this strong correlation between population density and voting behavior, the question becomes what are the implications of that for representation? What are the implications of that for who wins and loses and whose poly policy agenda uh, gets, gets put into place? Uh, and one of the really important features about that is that when electoral behavior, when voting is highly concentrated in space for one group and more dispersed for another, uh, a really interesting question arises when we start dividing the world into single member districts. So what I mean by that is uh, when we have a political system like the United States or Great Britain or really any of the countries that were colonized by Great Britain, including Australia, uh, Canada, and for most of the post-war period, New Zealand, when we, when we draw single member districts uh, that elect a the way we, we form a legislature is by electing one individual from those districts. Uh, when we divide up the world in that way, we end up concentrating voters for parties uh, uh, of the left, for the urban parties, uh, and we end up with more dispersed support for the parties of the right, uh, and this ends up creating, uh, creating a, an important uh, pattern in the transformation of votes to seats that uh, has, has existed over the, really throughout the post-war period, and it really affects uh, who gets represented and whose policies end up, uh, are end, end up as, as law. So, uh, so geography really matters in politics in a way that uh, I think we've, we've been somewhat aware of for a long time, but all of these factors have become much more important over time. So these are questions that kind of, there's a, there was an, a field of kind of classic British political geography in the in the 1950s, where people are, were asking these questions, and they were noticing some of these patterns in the immediate post-war period after the Industrial Revolution. Uh, but but much of this has become much more pronounced over time. There's been a real increase uh, in the concentration uh, of of electoral behavior over time. So the first question is, what explains that concentration? And then the second question is, what happens? When, uh, when we draw single member districts in the presence of that concentration. So the, the, the first, que first question, uh, my, my inclination has been to, to, to really look deep into history and try to understand when this first emerges. And of course, we can go back as far as we want and find that really as, as, as long as cities have been around. As long as people have been clustered in cities, there have been differences in preferences and differences in ideas about policy between urban dwellers uh, and, and, and rural dwellers. So there's traders and artisans, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, commerce in cities. Uh, people living in cities tend to have different uh, preferences than, than agrarians you know, even before the Industrial Revolution. But the thing I've noticed is that there's a real change in the way this works after the Industrial Revolution. So a really important moment for me is the late 19th century and the early 20th century, 
when industrialization spreads uh, to, to cities throughout Europe and, and North America, uh, I notice that as workers become mobilized by labor unions, by organizers, and ultimately by social democratic parties and workers' parties, these parties start to become fundamentally urban parties. They are parties that mobilize workers who tend to be highly concentrated in space. And those workers are concentrated in space in the first place because manufacturing is concentrated in space. And there's a lot we know from, from economic geography about why that is, about labor market pooling uh, and the importance of, of, of natural resources. And, and um, it's a, a common feature of that early period of industrialization that it's highly concentrated. So uh, along with that then went the construction of working class housing. This is a period in which workers don't have access to automobiles. Uh, public transportation is really in its early stages. And so you end up with very dense working class housing in, in, in close proximity to factories. And this is the place in which these social democratic and workers parties are uh, mobilizing people. And so these right away become very urban parties. Uh, and this is something that happens already in the 19th century, in the early 20th century in Europe uh, with the rise of labor parties and social democrats and workers parties. In the United States, it doesn't really happen. Uh, you know, of course, we have some small socialist parties, but it uh, doesn't really take off and become a, a, a national, uh, there isn't really a national party that represents the interests of workers uh, until the late 1920s and the early 1930s when the Democrats become that party in the New Deal, especially on uh, FDR. Uh, if we look at county level data, we see that there's really no correlation between population density and Democratic voting. Outside of a couple of states like New York and Massachusetts, uh, there was really no correlation until the New Deal. And then suddenly we see a correlation emerges. The Democrats become the party of urban workers. And so we see that uh, support for the Democrats becomes, be becomes urban starting in the 30s. And then that just continues. Uh, and we've seen uh, an increase in that correlation, a uh, slow, you know, slow increase in that correlation and a spread of that correlation first starting in just the manufacturing core, so the Northeast, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, New York, um, Ohio, states like that, eventually we see this pattern spread further west to states like Missouri and Kansas. Uh, uh, of course, at that time, the South was very different, had the opposite relationship. The Democrats were, were, uh, were uh, more successful in rural areas, completely different uh, political, um, completely different uh, politics in the South. Um, but eventually, What's fascinating is that, that this, this pattern, which was already there in the Northeast, and you know, the manufacturing core in the New Deal period, it really takes off and it really nationalizes. It really spreads to the rest of the country, starting at around the 1980s. Uh, and then there's just been an incredible acceleration in the correlation between democratic voting and population density since the 1980s. And to, the, to the present day, uh, certainly 2016 was not a, a sudden anomaly. It's, it's really been a kind of a steady growth of geographic concentration of Democrats in cities. Uh, and that growth has taken place uh, in kind of a steady uh, way ever since uh, around 1980. And, and it's important that it's also spread from the manufacturing core to the, to the mountain west uh, and to the south. And the south has really transformed, of course, uh, to where it's now a place where Democrats are highly concentrated in cities like Atlanta. Uh, and you see Georgia has a very similar correlation between population density and Democratic voting as we've always seen in a place like Pennsylvania. So that kind of nationalization of politics 
is is something that uh, has been has been an important part of the story. It's it's interesting to 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 uh, try to understand the the roots of the current relationship between density and democratic voting, and and I do think that the, what we see today really has its roots in the period in the of the industrial revolution, but of course. An urban-rural conflict in the United States is much older. It's something that uh, was there from the very beginning and, 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 and intimately wrapped up in the, in, the, in the controversy over slavery. But the, uh, but the kind of Hamilton versus Jefferson uh, frame of thinking about early American history, uh, certainly uh, it's easy to see and it makes sense to see, I think, Hamilton as a, as a representative of urban interests. Uh, and Jefferson was very clear about his disdain for cities and said a number of awful things about cities. Um, and he really viewed the United States as, a, as an agrarian republic. Uh, and so that tension between cities, between urban areas uh, uh, that, are, that are trying to build up industry uh, and, uh, and rural areas was, was there from the beginning. And it's there in, in many other countries as well. This, when you read Marx and Engels, and they're talking about the kind of conflict that, that uh, pronounced, uh, that, that characterized uh, European societies before the Industrial Revolution, uh, it was a description of something similar, where there's um, a, a battle between, between urban interests and you know, rural landowners, and uh, in, in, in battles over free trade, uh, and those battles are uh, are coming full circle, although they've they've changed in an important way. It was in in the past, it was always uh, rural areas that were in favor of, uh, of of free trade, and it was urban areas that were interested in protection for their new industries. Uh, and now, in the age of the knowledge economy, that has that has uh, changed. Uh, it's m much of manufacturing is now located outside of city centers. Uh, ever since uh, ever since the New Deal and the rise of labor unions, uh, manufacturing is moving away from city centers, moving to the south and to, to exurban areas and rural areas. Uh, and so those have become the, the places uh, that are, are, are more in favor of, of uh, trade protection. And it's the knowledge economy has grown up also in a very geographically concentrated way in city centers. And those are the places that benefit most from globalization and free trade. And we're back to these debates also with an urban-rural quality uh, about trade and protection, although the, the um, geographic location of the parties has changed over time. And so that's an important, uh, the, the, the changing economic geography is, is an important part of the story. Uh, the first part of this story really involves the rise of manufacturing and the rise of the urban working class. But the urban working class uh, very quickly after unionization takes place and uh, and ma manufacturing enterprises start leaving city centers, uh, we end up with a lot of cities that are kind of left behind, uh, where there's a lot of working class housing from that explosion of, of growth and and and, uh, and construction of apartment buildings and small workers' cottages, uh, triple deckers, and, and all of that working class housing that was built so quickly in the early 20th century is left behind and the manufacturing is gone and it generally attracts new migrants and poor people. Uh, and the, this becomes the, the, the beginning of the, the you know, urban decline in American cities. And so we end up with a lot, of, uh, a lot of poor voters in city centers. And the Democrats, of course, in the New Deal had been the ones to mobilize the urban voters. And those places became dominated by, by urban democratic politicians. 
the Democrats had become the party of cities, and then uh, in the post-manufacturing era, then they become the party of these post-manufacturing cities. Uh, but then along the way, there's another economic transformation. Uh, I mean, this story I've been telling is really a, a period that people, many people refer to as the second industrial revolution. Uh, but then we have this transformation that is often referred to as the third industrial revolution, the rise of the knowledge economy, uh, which also has a similar logic of geographic concentration, just like the, the original, just like the manufacturing revolution. There were lots of reasons why it made sense for manufacturing enterprises to co-locate, even sometimes within the same industry, often in the same industry. And a, a look at American cities throughout the Northeast is a, is a, is a, is a tour through uh, the, the various, uh, you know, the various uh, industrial agglomerations that took off uh, tires in, in Akron, uh, gloves in Gloversville. Uh, often, the, often the name is, is evocative of, of, of what was produced in that place. I mean, all these, these small um, localized agglomerations based on a certain type of economic production. Uh, and then in the, in the era of the knowledge economy, we also have strong reasons why there's geographic concentration of, uh, of, of production. It, it, there's many, many scholars have told the story about Silicon Valley and reasons why it, is, it can be very difficult for certain kinds of tech entrepreneurs to, to locate elsewhere. Uh, so there are lots of reasons, including some of the classic reasons, like labor market pooling, the fact that there are lots of educated uh, workers living in the era, in the same area, and lots of employers, uh, this creates efficiencies uh, that can be very powerful. And of course, the presence of venture capital and all those things that, that go together in, a, in, a, in an environment like, uh, like Boston, uh, and an environment like, like Palo Alto and San Francisco, uh, this now creates a concentration uh, in, in the knowledge economy sector. And, and a really fascinating and, and really kind of odd story when you think about it is that the party of the urban working class from the early 20th century has now become the party of the knowledge economy. And there is no good reason for that, I think, other than geography. I think we have to understand the extent to which the Democrats became an urban party in the era of manufacturing. Uh, and then once established, once all the mayors and, 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 and uh, you know, city mayors had become overwhelmingly democratic in many of these places and state governments in places like Massachusetts, um, the Democrats become the party that coalesces with universities and, uh, and the, uh, the knowledge economy sector in the early days and become the champions of that sector. Uh, and, and this only grows over time. And so the Democrats are still the party of, of, of Akron and, and Scranton. Uh, but at the same time, they're the party of San Francisco and Boston, and these are incredibly different constituencies. Uh, so the thing that, that they have in common is that they're urban. Uh, and so the Democrats have become a party that represents an incredibly diverse coalition of urban interests. Uh, and, this, and this is related not just to the rise of the knowledge economy and their continued presence of the Democrats in these old manufacturing cities, uh, but it also has to do with the rise of a, of a set of non-economic issues in the 1980s. And so when I describe an increasing correlation between density and democratic voting that took off after the 1980s, uh, I think it's important to, to you know, that this is the rise not only of globalization and the knowledge economy in that period, but it's also the rise of, uh, of, of, of politics related to religion uh, and uh, gender and you know, all the things that, that, that kind of came about, the ch social transformations that came about in the 60s and 70s, and then were really politicized in the 80s, where 
uh, you know, before the 1980s, it was not clear if one was a social conservative and one was anti-abortion, it was not clear whether one should be a Democrat or a Republican. That became much more clear in the 1980s. The parties took very sharply different positions on those issues. And, uh, and one's preferences on those issues are also highly correlated with population density. So once we add this additional set of issues, uh, it all starts to kind of bunch together. The parties become increasingly um, uh, um, separated in their, in their geographies. Uh, so uh, it, then the Democrats go from not only being a, being a party of urban workers, but also being a party of, of, of urban social progressives. Uh, and this leads to further sorting of individuals into the parties. That's something political scientists have described, you know, this sorting, right? knowing someone's preferences and whether they call themselves a liberal or conservative becomes much more predictive of whether they vote for uh, Democrats or Republicans. But there's a real geographic story to that as well. These people who are sorting uh, into the parties in this period are geographically uh, located in, way, in ways that are, that, are, that are quite clear and it all leads to an increase in this correlation between population density and democratic voting. Uh, and I think that's, so that all that comes together and we end up with these two bundles, these parties that just offer a set of, a set of policies that I think it might not even make that much sense anymore to refer to them as left and right. I think it makes more sense to refer to them as urban and, 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 and rural uh, because of the way they're, they're packaged together. Many people ask whether this, this correlation between population density and democratic voting is, is universal or is it something that really is there in these industrialized states like Pennsylvania? We know it's there in, in, in the big city. We can see on the election night maps that Democrats are very clustered in places like, uh, like Cleveland or Philadelphia. Uh, but one of the things that, that people don't often understand is that Democrats are also highly concentrated in places like Topeka, uh, Wichita. Uh, these are overwhelmingly democratic cities, uh, but they are not very large cities, they're smaller than the scale of a U.S. congressional district. So uh, we don't see Democrats being elected from any of those cities because they're surrounded by their, their, their rural Republican periphery. Uh, but the downtown cores of those cities, even in places like Kansas, uh, of course Kansas City, Kansas, and Topeka, and of course the college towns as well, Democrats are very concentrated in those places. So this pattern is, is fractal in the sense that we can see that there's a correlation between density and democratic voting at a very high level like states, and then we can really see it at the counties. But what's fascinating is when we go deeper and we go within counties, we see a very strong correlation between density and democratic voting at the precinct level within counties. So when you go from a rural area that's just farm fields, and then you go into the county seat, where there's a little bit of rental housing along the 19th century railroad, uh, and, and maybe there are some public sector workers, so there's a courthouse, uh, there are some unionized school teachers, and there are usually a lot of Democrats in these places. So the, the kind of the gradient as we go from a, a rural area to an urban area in partisanship can be very strong, even in places that we think of as kind of monolithically rural. Even those places are not monolithically rural, and the places that have more rental housing and young people uh, and, uh, and, 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 and um, poor people, and especially the places where there are minorities, uh, we see these we see these small kind of blue dots when we look at the precinct level maps, really uh, everywhere in the country. So once we see these patterns in in partisanship, we then have to ask ourselves, well, what's behind them? Why are there such differences in the voting behavior of uh, of people in the in the you know, area where the kind of county seat town uh, and the surrounding 
just just a, a mile away in the surrounding uh, exurbs where there are you know, larger houses uh, in, in arranged in subdivisions and then in the rural area beyond. What is it that, that, that brings about that type of difference? That is a question that uh, uh, I've been fascinated with for a long time and I'm trying to, uh, trying to answer. It is, uh, it, 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 it's got, it unfortunately doesn't have a single answer. I think there's a lot going on. In one thing I can, I can report is that places that had a lot of manufacturing employment, that had a lot of industry in the early 20th century, where these towns in question had uh, labor unions, the correlation is much stronger in those places. So I actually think there is something about a long, you know, a deep historical legacy. I mean, one thing political scientists know about party identification is it, it can be in some families like religion. It can be a thing that gets passed along from one generation to another. Uh, and uh, in some places there is a, there is a there's probably something like that going on, but that can't be the entire story. I think part of the story has to do with the legacy of those labor unions for institutions that live on. And so we all know that, that the private sector unions are, are, are really have, have been declined tremendously and the kinds of towns we're thinking about, they're, they're, they're gone. But, uh, but the public sector unions are not gone at all. Uh, and in fact, uh, in, in many of these county seat type places, a lot of people work for the municipal government and many of them are unionized. Uh, we have a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, unionized school teachers, for instance, uh, and, and you know, court workers, municipal workers, folks like that, uh, who are themselves members of public sector unions and they will vote overwhelmingly for Democrats. So that's a big part of the story. Another part of the story is that in some places, the city government has just been democratic ever since the New Deal, and uh, so much so that if you want to get a contract or you want to have any sort of um, any sort of uh, relationship with the town government, the the idea was that you just had you, the Democratic Party was 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 where you went for that, uh, and so and we see patterns like that around the world. This creates kind of stable partisanship over time. In some cases, it's 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 not hard to uh, understand that the the college or university. Brings in a different kind of uh, different kind of population that uh, that prefers uh, the Democratic Party, but the question about you know, what are the preferences that people what are their political preferences and how do those vary? That is something that's hard to answer because we don't really have such fine-grained surveys that allow us to to drill down, say, within uh, you know a county in Indiana and figure out well what are the differences in the in the preferences of the people in in downtown Muncie and how does that vary from the people in the suburbs versus the the, the the countryside, uh, but from from looking kind of more broadly at the data and characterizing places by whether they're kind of a small town core or an, or a medium sized city core or a suburb or a large city core or, or or rural, one thing we can see is that people are do have very different ideas about economic policy. Um, urban places tend to be much more progressive on economic policy. And we can imagine that probably has a lot to do with just demands for public goods that arise in an urban place. When one lives in a dense place, uh, it makes one one might have might come to understand the reasons why public transportation makes sense. Where one doesn't have that view if one lives in the exurbs or in, in in a rural area. So there are kind of demand-based arguments. 
like that. Um, but you know, back to the question of social issues, it's also the case that people who live in more dense places tend to be less religious uh, and uh, have, have less traditional uh, values on, on issues uh, like, um, you know, related to religiosity and, and, and morals. So, uh, so that's also correlated with population density. And I think that's true even at these lower scales. I, I've, I've started my, my academic career focusing on questions about federalism. And uh, I've always been interested in the relationship between higher level governments and lower level governments and the, and the trend toward fiscal decentralization uh, around the world that's been, been happening since uh, uh, really for, for several decades now. Uh, and this was something at the intersection of economics and political science. So I've always been interested in, in, in both of those. Uh, and so kind of understanding regions uh, and you know, one of the things that makes federalism and makes decentralization feel like a good idea is the idea that different people in different places want different things. And if we can introduce a decentralized system of government, we can make it more likely that more of those people get what they want more of the time. Uh, and then we also introduce the idea that people can move to places that offer the bundle of goods and services that they want. Uh, and so that's a, a set of issues that as a graduate student I got very interested in. Yeah, I, st I started studying uh, federalism uh, and uh, was, was working with, uh, with Juan Lintz who is a, uh, was uh, you know, kind of a giant in, in uh, the study of institutions. Uh, and so he got me interested in, in, in trying to think about institutions um, and, 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 and I think it suggested the idea of trying to understand um, some issues in, related to comparative federalism, Germany, the United States in comparison, and that's how I got started. But I got more interested then in, in, in statistics, uh, econometrics, um, uh, and uh, you know, economic theory, uh, and so ended up kind of blending the studies of, of federalism and economics with those in political science and ended up thinking about fiscal policy. And it was a time when, when a, a number of, of countries were experiencing debt crises among state and local governments, and that became the topic I kind of started with. Um, but, but along the way, learned a lot about regions and places and the ways in which their, their, their economies are distinctive. Uh, and, and like any other American, I was looking at maps on election night uh, and noticing some patterns uh, and it got me interested and, th and then the thing that really got me interested is when I started looking at other countries and seeing similar patterns and Americans uh, don't often pay so much attention to this sort of thing but if you look at an electoral map of Britain uh, it has many qualities that are very similar to an electoral map of the United States in that labor support is highly concentrated in, 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 in the old industrial cities and in the new knowledge economy cities and in the college towns like Oxford uh, and, uh, and votes for the conservatives are, are highly distributed in the rural areas and that's not new at all. This is something that's been true really throughout the post-war period. Uh, Canada has become remarkably similar to the United States uh, on this dimension. The votes for the NDP and the liberals are highly concentrated in city centers uh, and the votes for the conservatives are concentrated in rural areas, it looks there are spread out in rural areas, it looks just like the United States. And one, one thing I sometimes do for fun when I'm demonstrating this to, to people is I make maps, electoral maps of the U.S. and Canada uh, where I just remove the, the, the boundary between the two and, and don't allow the viewer to see where Ontario uh, starts. Uh, and you can't tell. It's just the same pattern. You know, along the Great Lakes, on the old industrial towns, the Democrats and the NDP and the Liberal Party are concentrated in the, in the, in the city center. 
uh, and the, the Republicans and the conservatives are, are spread out in the exurbs and, and, the, and the rural areas. So just seeing those patterns, I, I think, it really was very descriptive at first. Uh, I was interested in just understanding those patterns. Uh, and then I started noticing patterns in, in the way votes transform into seats. This is about the same time when, when we start noticing big uh, differences between vote shares and the seat shares of the, of the, of the Democrats. There were these uh, observations, even in Australia as well, that the Labor Party is highly concentrated in you know, the urban working class neighborhoods of, of Melbourne and Sydney, uh, and they, where they win big super majorities. Uh, and the, uh, and the, the Liberal Party is more spread out in the, in the rural areas, and they can, win, uh, they can win a seat share that is far beyond their, their vote share. And, the, and it's always hard for the, for the Labor Party to transform its votes into seats. I realize the same pattern is still with us. In fact, it's strengthened in some ways. Uh, and this is what's going on in the US. But in the US, people see that pattern and they have one answer, and that answer is gerrymandering. Everyone, um, because gerrymandering is such a unique and fascinating American practice that goes back to great, uh, you know, goes back to Elbridge Gerry and, and, and has been continued by people like Phil Burton and, and uh, uh, Tom DeLay, and, and it's, it's a lot of fun to, to try to understand the ways in which one can manipulate maps to, to manipulate outcomes, and that certainly can and does, uh, can happen and does happen. Uh, and, and gerrymandering is a very important part of the story in the United States. But there is this deeper underlying story that, um, that is even there in places where politicians don't draw the districts, even in places like Great Britain and Canada where independent commissions have always drawn the districts, or at least for, for, for most of recent history. And yet we see the same underrepresentation of the, of the urban parties. In, in a parliamentary system, the parties have a, a, a rather a relatively easy job when they're trying to set their platform. So we have a bunch of districts, and the goal is to win more districts than your opponent. And so what you need to do, if you think of those districts as being, dis being arranged in some ideological space from left to right, uh, you want to try to win the pivotal district, so the median district. You need to win the district in the center of the distribution. So you need to figure out what is the strategy I need to take to win that district. So in a parliamentary system, that's all you need to do. Um, and that's what the parties try to do for the most part. I mean, there are battles between, you know, on the left, I think it's a hard thing because the urban purists, so those who live in, in, the, um, in the old working class neighborhoods and city centers and some of these new knowledge economy centers, can be much more progressive than the voters in those pivotal districts. And so there's always a fight on the left about what the party's platform should be. You see this fight in the, in, the, in the Labor Party between Jeremy Corbyn and the more moderate uh, uh, groups. And you go back to the, to the Blair period, and this is a, a time when the, when, the, when the Labor Party really moderated its platform and it was able to win those crucial suburban districts. Now they're in a, in a, in a situation where they've gone back to a more, uh, a more hard left platform that makes it harder for them. They win big majorities in the urban districts and they find it hard to win in those pivotal districts. So the Democrats have the same kind of problem. But there's a different twist in the United States. We don't, a party doesn't just need to decide how to win this, the pivotal district in the legislature, because they also have to figure out how to win uh, statewide elections, and uh, so gubernatorial elections, Senate elections. There, we have multiple tiers of, of competition, and so the question, uh, the, the best strategy for winning the Senate might not be the best strategy for winning that pivotal district in the state's House delegation or in the state legislature. 
And, uh, and of course, when it comes to winning presidential electors in a presidential election, it's the same thing. It's a statewide um, process of, of counting up these electoral votes. So as the party strategically tries to figure out how to message and what kind of candidates to run and what kind of issues to emphasize, it might be possible to win a statewide election by really trying to to, to mobilize progressive urban voters because a vote is a vote in a statewide election. It doesn't matter if it came from a city or if it came from a suburban or rural area. And so a lot of your supporters are concentrated in cities and so you can go and mobilize those supporters and try to win uh, with an urban-based coalition. So we see that in states like Missouri, uh, the Democrats are able to win Senate seats in large part by turning out their base in, in St. Louis and Kansas City. In Ohio, it's quite possible for the uh, for the for the Democrats to win Senate seats and even the gubernatorial elections, again by by really trying to build from the strength of their of their urban voters. But trying to win the Missouri or Ohio congressional delegation is a completely different undertaking. You need to try to figure out how to craft a message that brings you to victory in that crucial pivotal district, which will often be somewhere in the exurbs of St. Louis or somewhere outside of Columbus, Ohio. And those places tend to be quite a bit more conservative than, um, than, the, than, the, um, than the Democrats' kind of urban message uh, uh, allows, it, it, you know, it makes it difficult. If they've crafted a message that allows them to win statewide elections, that message can be kind of inefficient for winning in those pivotal suburban places. And so that's a, pr a problem that the Democrats have to grapple with, that the Labor Party doesn't have to grapple with. Uh, the Labor Party certainly does have a difficult challenge, but the, the Democrats have an especially difficult challenge because they're being pulled in, in two directions. And so an important observation here is that the ideology of the median voter in many U.S. states is, is to the left of the ideology in the median district. And so if you craft your message to, on that statewide median voter, that's, that's actually fine for winning Senate seats, but it's not fine for winning House seats. And so you come to be seen as too liberal, uh, and you end up winning only a congressional seat in St. Louis and a congressional seat in Kansas City and nothing else, even though you have a fairly competitive statewide elections in a place like Missouri. And there are lots of other examples of this where the Democrats actually routinely win statewide elections, uh, but they can't even dream of winning the, 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 the congressional delegation or the state legislature uh, because, of the, because of the geographic concentration and dispersion of their supporters. I think the best example of this I can think of is the Pennsylvania State Senate. Uh, I think everyone thinks of Pennsylvania as a purple state, or maybe even, um, uh, or maybe even in, in recent years, a blue state. The Democrats have done very well in statewide elections uh, for Senate, for the governor, for attorney general. All the other statewide seats, the Democrats have done very well. Uh, they've almost swept uh, recent, uh, recent statewide elections in Pennsylvania, with the exception of the presidency in 2016. Uh, but they have not won the Pennsylvania State Senate since the 1970s. And, and a lot of it has to do with the, the fact that Democrats are too concentrated in, in their old industrial cities. Um, and uh, they're, not able to, they're not able to craft a message that is sufficiently appealing in those, in those pivotal suburban districts. Uh, and so that kind of thing happens in lots of places. So the Democrats would like to believe that redistricting reform will do away with this class of problems. And I think that is, that is uh, there are some states where that may be true, uh, but there are other states where changing the nature of redistricting would only make a small dent in this, in this 
basic problem, uh, and that one would have to really go out of their way to draw districts that uh, would undo the Democrats' geography problem. And so what I say, what, what kind of things would they need to do to go out of their way to solve that problem? Well, they would need to take cities and carve them up. Uh, and so when Democrats do get the opportunity to draw districts, that's what they try to do. Although they have urban incumbents who don't like it, who fight against it, uh, they also have the Voting Rights Act to contend with, uh, which makes it uh, potentially illegal to carve up urban districts uh, and thereby make it less likely that, that, um, that, that minority candidates uh, would be elected. Candidates of choice for minority groups would be elected. So, uh, but when they are able to, they, they do things like they did in Chicago, which is take the, take the, some, you know, draw districts that start at, at the lake and then, and then go out into the, into the suburbs in ways that make those districts less overwhelmingly democratic. Uh, that's something the Democrats uh, need to do in order to, to get a better transformation of votes to seats, but it's hard for them to do that. Uh, and it's not something that would emerge from a nonpartisan redistricting process. Now, there are some states where their distribution is much less inefficient, and it's all, again, a pattern. It, this all has to do with the nature of city formation in the 19th century. There are some states where there is a nice, even distribution of cities um, uh, that are smaller, and so they, they interact with the scale of districts in such a way as to, to not under, undermine democratic support. So we have a lot of small cities in Wisconsin, small industrial cities in the Fox River Valley and like Appleton and places like that, uh, where when you draw districts in that kind of environment, it's, it's, it's not so bad for the, for the Democrats. But in places where they're really large cities, and the Democrats are highly clustered in those cities, uh, then there are also smaller cities where they're perhaps too small to form their own districts. Uh, the Democrats have a, a, a really insurmountable problem in transforming votes to seats and just using a computer algorithm, which is something I've done a lot of, uh, worked with, with a group of, 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 of others, and there's really kind of a, a cottage industry now of mathematicians and, 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 and computer scientists who are working on automated redistricting using, using computer algorithms. So we can generate 100,000 plans for a state and look at the partisanship of those plans. Uh, and in many states, we see that, that even using, and you can change the criteria and say, well, we'd like the districts to be more compact or less compact. We'd like to obey county boundaries or not obey county boundaries, have different, different ways of thinking about municipal boundaries. But no matter how we do it, in many of these states, we still end up with uh, an underrepresentation of Democrats because of their urban concentration. So that is a problem that uh, the Democrats uh, will find it very tricky to, to solve. And, and so for some, the solution will, will continue to, to be, uh, we, we need to win and try to draw the districts ourselves in, in some of the ways that I've described. I think others uh, still would rather disarm and, 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 and promote redistricting reform. And this, is, this will be an interesting battle in the years ahead. When the Republicans were in charge of the redistricting process for the last couple of cycles, especially the last one, it feels to many Democrats like gerrymandering is something that is, a, is, a, is a, mainly advantages Republicans. That's the case if the Republicans are the only ones who have the opportunity to redraw the districts. But if the Democrats end up finding themselves in a position to draw the districts themselves, they have a lot to gain by drawing them in, in, in careful ways. So it will be interesting to see what becomes of all the enthusiasm among Democrats for redistricting reform, because it may be that in some states, the Republicans actually have 
quite a bit to gain, especially at this moment, from redistricting reform. Uh, and so the good news is for those who do support redistricting reform, it can truly be a bipartisan uh, endeavor. Uh, and it's possible, I think, to make a strong case to Republicans that they would be uh, very wise to, to join in the efforts at redistricting reform, because in some states, a neutral, nonpartisan process would be quite good for the Republicans. Uh, and again, it varies a great deal from one state to another. Uh, but, so the parties will have some interesting decisions to make about their, uh, about their, their, um, their, their attitude toward redistricting reform. But, but the deeper question uh, for, the, for the parties about how to position themselves, given this asymmetric geography, uh, is, is one that's perhaps just as, as vexing. You know, how do the Democrats choose their platform when the efficient platform for winning a statewide race is very different than the efficient platform for winning uh, the median district. It, this is not actually a new problem for the Democrats. They've been struggling with this in many of many states ever since the New Deal. And the solution they've come up with is essentially not to have a platform. Uh, it's to be a party that is many things to many people uh, and to allow individuals to run in these pivotal districts with uh, with very different with, with very distinctive platforms from the from the national party platform even the state party platform and so we see the see the Democrats returning to that strategy uh, in, in in the recent uh, run-up to the recent election trying to find candidates who really reflect in those pivotal districts the the views of, uh, of local citizens and trying to just distance themselves, uh, really quite explicitly distance themselves from the party leadership, the national party leadership. Uh, so we have a thing that you would never see in a parliamentary system. We have individuals running as Democrats who say, if you elect me, I won't vote with the Democrats and I won't vote for the current leadership of the Democratic Party. I will try to change the party from within. In a presidential system, it's credible to, to run on that, on that kind of a platform. And so this is what we see the Democrats, I think, one direction they might go, it's one they seem to be moving in, is to, to try to find candidates who can credibly distance themselves from the National Party, uh, but yet still vote with the National Party on, on some issues some of the time. So all the, all the problems I've been describing are deep and, 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 and old problems. You know, the, the problem of regional sectionalism, the problem that, uh, that different regions of the country, different parts of the country want different things and they can't agree, that was the problem, of course, uh, at the beginning of the country, and, and, and the, the United States, of course, fought a civil war. Uh, the, the, this type of problem is, is, is always with us, and we now have to decide uh, how, how, to, how to solve the current manifestation of it, which is quite, quite strong. We have a situation in which the elections feel like battles between two very different ways of life. Uh, urban residents feel completely left without representation when the Democratic Party loses, and rural uh, residents feel very much the same way when the Democratic Party wins. Uh, so they view politics as this winner-take-all, kind of very high-stakes battle, almost existential battle, and I think that is that's that's very very dangerous, and it's something that. Uh, that we would do well to try to unwind. So I think that making this urban-rural polarization less intense is uh, a much more important uh, policy issue than thinking about small changes to how we draw districts. Uh, so the most obvious 
proposal is also the most radical, and it's one that many many Americans uh, will reject out of hand. But the the proposal is doing what Europe did in the early 20th century and doing what New Zealand has actually done quite recently, which is give up on the whole business of winner-take-all districts and uh, and switch to a system of proportional representation. And one thing that that would do is if it generated uh, a more diverse party system, it would, it would start to unwind these bundles that we've created uh, in which urban residents who are progressive on economic issues uh, and, uh, and, and social issues uh, are, are bundled together into a, into a party that represents uh, such a wide and such a diverse array of, of, of perspectives. Uh, it turns out there are lots of Americans and there are plenty of people in Europe who prefer uh, less government regulation of the economy, but they also prefer less government regulation of things like uh, abortion and gay rights. And so in European countries, there are parties that represent that, that position. They're, they're, liberal parties, or, or uh, they have various names, but most European countries have a party like that. There are also lots of people who have more traditional preferences on social issues, but who prefer uh, more government involvement in things like health care. Uh, and the United States doesn't have a party that really offers that set of, uh, set of uh, platforms. In, in, in many European countries, we have something like that, often a Christian Democratic Party or something along those lines. And so uh, what happens then in Europe is that educated urban voters who in the U.S. have become Democrats, those voters have now become supporters of, of labor parties or social democratic parties or socialist parties. They've become supporters of liberal parties or in some cases conservative parties that have, um, that have more progressive uh, positions on, on social issues. And so that leads to a kind of depolarization. Uh, that I think would be very valuable in the United States. So we see that a government of the right in Sweden is not a government of, of, of the countryside. It's not a government that leaves cities out of representation altogether. It turns out Stockholm votes overwhelmingly for a party of the right. And so a, a right-wing government in, in uh, Sweden is, is, is basically a coalition between urban voters and rural voters. And the same thing is true of left, the parties of the left in Sweden. They also have more support in, in rural areas. So proportional representation can unbundle uh, the, the, the parties in, in ways that, that would, be, would be potentially very, very uh, useful. Uh, but if we... If we're not able to, to muster up the, and there may be plenty of reasons why proportional representation is, is uh, it may have some costs, it may not be a perfect solution, but it's also one that many Americans are not willing to consider, and so the question is, you know, what, what, what future might we have if we continue with the current um, intensely two-party two -party competition? Uh, one, one possibility uh, is, is that the parties themselves end up unbundling some of these issues. It, it seems conceivable that, uh, that a, a, a candidate in the Democratic Party could, could adopt positions related to trade that are more similar to those of the, that the Republican Party has recently adopted. Uh, and this could, uh, could lead to you know, an, an explicit effort, perhaps, to, to, to regain some of the lost uh, votes in, in rural areas. Uh, that would begin to kind of unwind this correlation between density and democratic voting. And we can also imagine a future in which the Republican Party is trying to reposition itself, perhaps after a, a, an electoral uh, loss, uh, and, and tries to find a way to, to um, 
to re-engage with certain kinds of urban voters. That's one possibility. Um, uh, but another possibility that I think is worth thinking about, and it's a longer-term possibility, is just is just that that Americans uh, might change their residential patterns in ways that 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 uh, undermine some of what I've described. Uh, we think, and there's a lot of popular, uh, I think there's a lot of popular discussion of this. We think that Americans are always moving to ever more homogeneous locations, and that they're sorting themselves into neighborhoods where everyone else is like them. And certainly a lot of that has happened, and some of that continues. But if we really look at the groups that are most likely to move, and we look at where they are moving, uh, there are some interesting patterns that have not really, they've started to get some attention, but I think they deserve a lot more attention. Uh, a lot of the young people who are moving uh, are, are, are Democrats, and they're moving from places that are, uh, are more democratic to places that are actually more competitive. Uh, and so a lot of the largest, fastest growing counties are counties that are actually becoming more politically competitive. And so part of this is people moving to places where there are opportunities and where there are uh, you know, labor market opportunities, but also uh, affordable housing. So we see a lot of a lot of growth in the population of cities like Houston and Dallas, and in neighborhoods that are actually becoming more heterogeneous. So people who are moving are often Democrats, and they tend to be moving to places that are actually uh, relatively Republican, and making those places more competitive. And there, there are lots of examples of that. But it is it is conceivable that over time, especially as suburbanization continues, you know, the whole thing that I've described is very much about concentration of people in cities. And one thing we should notice is that Americans are becoming ever less concentrated in cities. We're becoming a much more suburbanized society. Sometimes it doesn't seem that way if you live in New York or DC and you see all the gentrification and, and all the demand for, for housing in the city center. But in most of the country, suburbanization is still happening. City centers are still losing population. People are spreading out in space. And as they do so, the suburbs are actually the most competitive places. So you can imagine if this trend continues, Americans start to move to more and more competitive places. Um, and this pattern need not continue forever so that there is a possible future in which it starts to unravel.